Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Praise the Lord. Great to see all of you here and uh, guests among us. We do have a very special announcement at the end of the service that we'll be making, so uh, praise the Lord uh, for that. Well, we're back here. Last weekend, we had a wonderful time at Hearthstone Bible Camp. Hearthstone Bible Camp, four days out, and uh, we were just fellowshipping together, listening to the Word of God. Praise the Lord for Hernandez family for coming out and just blessing us both, you know, as a congregation. I heard women had a really good session as well, so praise the Lord. But we are back here. Those of you who are joining us online, we did not have online service uh, last week, but we are back, so praise the Lord for that. As we turn to Matthew chapter 7, I want to invite us to just bow our heads again and we will pray before we hear God's word. Our, our Father, we thank you for the sure foundation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. He alone is forever, He alone stands forever. And you give us the faith to believe in him, not in our performance, not in our goodness, not in our work, not in anything that belongs to us. It is all Jesus Christ. And as we wrap up this sermon here, Christ wants to be crystal clear. And Lord, we want to hear him clearly and we want to understand what it means to believe in Christ, what it means to rest in him. We thank you that you give us faith that works, faith that cherishes Christ, faith that looks at this world and considers it nothing compared to the value that is in Jesus Christ. And I just pray for us as believers who have gathered here this morning that you would just ignite in us this passion for Jesus Christ, to rest in him and to allow the spirit, his spirit that is in us to work out your righteousness in us. We know that we fall short, but that is why we need his perfect righteousness and we are clothed in it. It has been imputed to us. Help us to stand on solid rock. And we pray for those who may be in attendance who do not know you, Lord, would you just open up their hearts to believe, to behold, to surrender, not just be mere listeners, admirers of Jesus, but convert their hearts, we pray. May they Leave this place changed. We ask for your sake. Amen. Amen. So for the final time this morning, we will be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this sermon for a number of months now, but for the final time here, Jesus, beginning with verse 24, Matthew 7, 24, he warns his people. He is pleading with his people to trust and to surrender to him so that as they do that in this life, their faith and their life can ultimately endure into the next. What you do with Christ today, friends, how you respond to Christ in this life has everything to do with what happens in the next. How many of you heard of the tragedy that happened in Florida on June 24th, just a just few weeks ago, when a 12-story condo building collapsed, 
in the middle of the night. It's a very terrible situation. Already, as of last night, they have discovered 86 bodies dead, and 43 people are still unaccounted for. I've read an article on insider.com that says this, as unanswered questions begin to mount, a timeline of the condominium's recent history reveals a smattering of warning signs that emerged before the devastating collapse. In 2018, an engineering consultant found major structural damage to the tower, abundant cracking and fragmentation of the columns, beams, and walls in the garage underneath the collapsed tower. In 2020, Florida University professor, through studies, determined that the land around the collapsed tower showed signs of sinking going all the way back to 1990s. The tower was built in 1981. Two months before the collapse, the condo association president outlined in a letter that major repairs needed to be done to the tower immediately. And two days before the collapse, a pool contractor visited the condo and noticed, quote, standing water all over the parking garage, as well as cracking concrete and corroded rebar under the pool. It seemed that all the signs, however, inspection after inspection, letter after letter, they were being ignored. No one really paid attention. No one cared to, to address, no one cared to warn the residents of this 12-story building to get out because the danger was impending. And although the actual investigation is still on, these reports are actual. People's lives were in jeopardy, and now many of them are no more. They didn't even know about it. Well, as we look at this passage, I just found it very similar to, to what's going on over there, to what Jesus here warns us of. Friends, I want you to know this morning that Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. He loves us enough to warn us. In other words, if you knew of the danger that was coming ahead, the way you would demonstrate your love towards someone who is coming this way is to warn them, hey, there's impending, there's cliff here, right? The, the ground is not stable. It's shaky. Get out. Don't even go. Don't even proceed. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing here in verses 24 through 27. He says, listen, everything in the end will collapse. No matter how beautiful, no, long, no matter how tall, no matter how strong things may look in this life right now. If you don't trust Christ, if you don't trust Christ, everything will collapse. Because remember, church, in the end, in the end, everything depends on your foundation. Everything hangs, everything stands or falls because of its foundation. So Matthew 8, 24, look with me at this passage. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell 
and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. As we look at this passage, just one overall theme that I want us to to focus on and we'll break this down is this true saving faith treasures Christ and his words and endures to the very end. True saving faith treasures Christ and his words and endures to the very end. In these final verses, we have a closing illustration from Jesus the preacher and then a final note in the last two verses from the gospel writer about the preacher himself. What I would like us to do here is to see how Jesus and Matthew are calling us to respond to the entire sermon, beginning with Matthew 5 all the way through 7. In light of what's been taught then, our goal is not to merely hear the message, but it is to obey the message. Not hear, but to obey. And so, two things I want us to focus on. First of all, don't just hear the message, but obey the message. That is the whole point of illustration found in verses 24 through 27. He says, therefore, look at the verse, the beginning of verse 24. Therefore, therefore, this is it. After everything has been said, in the span of three chapters, Jesus brings its message to the conclusion, final illustration. Everyone falls, he says, into these two categories. And Jesus makes his final appeal to his listeners to respond. Please respond. Don't leave. Don't just leave admiring. Please respond in faith. And so he compares the man who hears his word and does them with the man who hears but doesn't. And so two illustrations, two comparison. The wise man, he says, hears and obeys. Hears and obeys. And so he says, therefore, everyone, puts everyone in the, to that category who hears these words of mine. And this must be a very radical statement to his hearers. Remember who, whom he's addressing. He's addressing his disciples, chapter one, but there are also crowds that are gathered around them and Almost all of them, probably all of them are Jews. He's addressing the Jews who believe in one God who revealed himself on Mount Sinai to his chosen people. And being those who believe in one God, the only words that matter to this group, to this congregation, to this Jewish congregation were God's words, the ones that they received, the ones that they had written already. And here again, Look at Jesus here. He's not afraid to equate himself to God. Why? Because he is God. Jesus is God. Already in chapter five, he'd make that clear when he said, you have heard the ancients were told, but I say to you. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Pay attention to my interpretation. In, in chapter seven, verse 21, he refers to God as his father and indicates that He, Jesus, is the ultimate judge before whom everyone will give an account on the last day. Jesus will judge. 
Now, Jesus takes ownership of everything he preaches here in 5, 6, and 7 and says, these words are mine. You better pay attention. You know, just like at the time of Christ, the world today is full of people who love to hear the words of Christ. They're full of hearing. Many read their Bibles, even outside of the church, I'm sure you've noticed, People read the Bible. Yeah, I read that. You talk to your unbelieving friend. Yeah, I know that. Why do you read the Bible? Just to glean some wisdom, some inspiration. You know, even unbelievers have some of the excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount hanging on their refrigerator, right? Magnets. Many in the church also spend years and years listening to the message, listening to God's word being preached and read and prayed But according to Jesus, listen, church, only one kind of hearing is saving. Only one kind of hearing is saving. True hearing, Jesus says, causes the doing. Okay, notice this. True hearing causes change. The one who hears the words of Christ, hears them in such a way that hearing causes him to act and to react, to move, to do something. Hearing here that leads to action, that leads to doing. And Jesus calls this type of hearing that leads to doing wisdom. Wisdom. Here's what a wise man looks like, he says. The one who hears and does what I say. He knows the truth about Jesus Christ because the entire sermon is about Christ. It's about our need for him. And so this man in the crowd, he's listening to Christ. He's like, I am hearing. I see what you're saying. I understand. And he reacts to it. He applies it. Jesus, here, look in your Bibles, has been stressing this idea of doing ever since verse 15. Again, This is the conclusion. He doesn't want people to just merely listen and and leave. He wants them to do something, okay? Eight times from verses 15 through 27, eight times the word do, right, is used here. And, And in our English Bibles, it's translated a little bit different, but let me just walk you through it. Verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit. So does, that's the same exact word, Uh, as he uses in verse uh, 24, acts on them, produces them. So the one who hears produces, the one who, who hears does, bears good fruit, right? But the bad tree bears bad fruit, he says. So there's this production that Jesus is expecting from those who hear the word of God to respond properly. So bears good fruit. And then Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, not everyone who comes to me with a profession, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, the one who bears, right? The one who produces something. There's, there's some kind of reaction to hearing God's word. And now in verse 24, he says, this man, this wise man, he actually acts out. Something happens in his heart. Jesus' half-brother, James, he wrote something similar in his letter, James chapter 1 Verse 22, he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This word delude, right? It means to deceive. Why deception? Why is he focusing on deception? So prove yourself doer of the word, not merely hearer who deceives himself. Well, Jesus here 
is addressing the kind of people who believe that it is enough to merely hear Christ, who believe that it's enough to attend the church and to to hear the message of the gospel. You may even, listen, appreciate the message, but if you walk out of those doors full of self and live for yourself and the world, it doesn't matter how impressed the message was and how much how impressed you were with the speaker or the preacher or the message or or even Christ you've missed it you're not showing genuine faith you're not showing saving faith friends you you might be genuinely impacted by the word and you're sitting here and you have this desire to to live and to obey Christ but you leave this room and you struggle all week out there to live for Christ. It it doesn't mean you're not a doer of the word. Struggle is real for Christian. Struggle is part of godly life, and this is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not addressing this issue of struggle. He's addressing the people who feel content with merely hearing and leaving. The fact that we all struggle is given. That's why we need Jesus Christ, friends. That's why we need to rest in him. That's why we need to believe in him. But James says, blessed are the doers. Blessed are those who respond to Christ in such a way that hearing his word produces a change and it actually bears good fruit. And so therefore, Jesus is calling his disciples, be blessed. Church, be blessed. He says, the wise man hears and he responds, and he gives this illustration. Uh, this one who, who hears and, and this hearing produces obedience, produces action, he may be compared, right? He is like a wise man who does what? Who builds his house on the rock. Builds his house on the rock. Now, Jesus here, he is not talking about construction material, okay? He's not talking about, you know, two by fours and whatever else, bricks, whatever other material you might be building. What he's talking about is your life. To build a house is a metaphor for life. How do you construct your life? What's your life built on? What is your ultimate foundation? Friends, each day you live, you are building something. Children here, teenagers in our congregation, Right now, you're constructing your life with every small and large decision you are making. That will reflect in the overall structure of your life. And Jesus says the wise man, he builds on a sound, sound, solid foundation. And notice this, look into your text, verse 24. I want you to see that this man does not build the foundation. He builds on the foundation, and that's key. He does not build on, or he doesn't build the foundation. He builds on the foundation. It's something that's provided. It's giving to him. And this foundation is not just, you know, a small stone or it's a huge boulder, but it literally means like a bedrock. Like if you were going to build a house in Palestine, you would have to dig deep. You'd have to get through all the sand and then some some soft clay until you hit compacted soil. Like, this is it. This is the bedrock that I will build on. Petra, big, huge, 
bedrock. But look at verse 24. When you build a house, then comes the ultimate test. Verse or 25 rather. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Then, and as they beat down and slam on that house, literally means it says that these storms that come in, they fall upon the house and then the house falls over. So there's a play on words here, right? The, the, the storm comes in and it falls upon and the house does not prevail, it just topples over. Or in this case, does it? The house falls or the storm falls upon this house, yet it does not fall because it was founded on the rock. Because, here's the reason why. Some of your translations say for, for. Here's the reason. Let me tell you why your house that you've been constructing all of life remains standing when the storm comes. Is it because you're wise? No. Is it because of the structure of your house? No. Is it because of the materials that you used? No. The emphasis, friends, is only on the foundation. The entire reason why this life was safe, it's because it was founded on the rock. And friend, Jesus wants you to know only this piece of information about the house. He doesn't describe the square footage of the house. He doesn't give you any more details, how big, how small. None of that is relevant at this point. The only piece of evidence or the only piece of information that is relevant is the foundation. Was it built on the rock or not? I was thinking this week as I was preparing for, for this sermon, I began to wonder what, what these uh, storms and, and rains and, and floods were meant to depict here in this passage. Some say, you know, it's a metaphor for hard times in life, like the difficulties that you encounter, which could derail you, and, and if you're not standing on the firm foundation of Christ, then, then you're, you're gonna be swept away. Um, some commentators compare, you know, this to uh, Matthew chapter 13, where, where Jesus talks about the parable of the soils, remember? And so Jesus' sower goes out and sows, and then some soil falls on the hard soil. And then it says, because of temptation, right, and because of persecution, they fall off. But if we just look at this context here, beginning with verse 15 all the way through the end, I believe it means something else here. It's not a reference to just everyday trials, and, and we do have our trials, and it is true that if you're not fixed and focused on Christ, you'll be all over the place. Like Hebrews chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of faith. You do that so that you can survive and continue to please Christ in this life, but here, specifically here, what is this metaphor? Remember, Jesus uses various illustrations to basically paint one picture and make one point, beginning with verse 13. He says, choose me or you will be destroyed. Choose me or you will be destroyed. Look at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. Why? For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. 
And as we've studied through this passage, we noticed and we made reference to the destruction that Jesus says. This is it. This is the ultimate eternal damnation. Look at verse 19. The tree producing bad fruit will be thrown into fire. Fire. Judgment. And then verse 23. Those who only profess to know the Lord, those who profess to have some kind of association with Jesus Christ but do not love the Lord will be cast out where he says, depart from me into utter darkness. So the destruction, fire, this departure from God are all pictures of the final judgment and of hell. Therefore, this metaphor of the storm must in the same context, illustrate the same point. God's final judgment against sin, it is coming and it is coming to all mankind. And Jesus is calling people in light of what's gonna happen. He knows, God knows, trust his word. He knows what's coming. He knows why he's here. He knows why he being God, he came down, he took a form of a bond slave, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why? Because he knew why. He needed to save sinners. Why? Because ultimately, there's a point in a day, a day where every man and every woman will be judged. And so Jesus is calling out, beginning with verse 13, come, enter through the gate. Who is the gate? Me, Jesus says. Beware, in verse 15, of all the false prophets who point you away from me and point you to all the other directions. Says, no, don't go to Christ. Don't trust him. Don't believe in him. You have all these other options. You have all these other ways. He says, believe or beware and run away from them because they come to you in sheep's clothing. And then finally, he says in verse 24, if you're going to build, and everybody is building, both the foolish and the wise is building, but if you're going to build, and you're going to build, build on me. Build on me. Who is this rock? Me, Jesus. Jesus says, this rock is me. I am your only true foundation. Now, I already said it, but let's, let's go back and, and make these necessary connection to prove that Jesus is the rock. From the Old Testament to the New, God was seen as a solid rock that offered protection and salvation for his people. It's everywhere. Like, I try to find in, in Psalms all the reference to God being rock and salvation, and I just lost count, and I'm like, man, this is, this is good enough. Uh, there are a lot of references, but let me even go back a little bit more. First Samuel 2.2, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Rock like our God. Psalm 27.5, for in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. In the day of trouble? Sounds like the day of judgment, perhaps? The psalmist says, I will survive, and he's sure of it. He's convinced. Why? Because you will lift me up on the rock. Who is this rock? Isaiah 28, 16 says this. This is 
God promising something. Look at this. Listen, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Isaiah 28, 16. This is God's gift and this is God's promise. God will lay this stone and whoever believes and whoever responds in this life and builds his life on that rock will not be moved. And if we go to the New Testament now, after the gospels, after Jesus lives, right? After he dies, after he's resurrected and after he ascends to the father where he is right now, in Acts chapter four, Verse 10, look at this. Listen to these words. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man, lame man, this man stands before you in good health. He, Jesus Christ, pointing back to him, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The rock that was promised in Isaiah 28, verse 16, is the very rock that was rejected by men. But as Peter says, is choice and precious in the sight of God. Choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus is the rock. He is the only one who could save you, friend. Why, you might ask. Why? Because he alone possesses perfect righteousness. That's why. That's why. He alone lived a perfect life. He alone died for your sins as your substitute. He alone promises that all who come to hear his message and respond by faith will be saved. But there's another here, man. In verse 26, there's another man here, and Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act them will be like a fool. The fool, the fool also hears. It's the reality. The fool hears, but the fool doesn't respond. The fool doesn't obey. And look, there are many similarities, right, between these. They hear, they also build, and they all face the storm. Many similarities, but there's only one difference. The fool does not obey, and as a result, gets destroyed. J.C. Ryle says this, the man who hears Christian teaching and never gets beyond hearing satisfies himself with listening and approving, but he goes no further. He flatters himself, perhaps, that all is right and, and his soul, with his soul, because he has feelings and, and convictions and desires of a spiritual kind. In these he rests. He never really breaks off from sin and 
cast aside the spirit of the world. He never really lays hold of Christ. He never really takes up his cross. He is hearer of truth, but nothing more. The foolish man is the one who hears, but this hearing does not produce a change because if you hear and if you trust Christ and if you respond and if you are born again, there's a certain allegiance to Christ. There's a beholding Christ and everything that he is and you want to follow and you want to love and you want to obey fruit of saving faith. But the fool, listen, he still builds a house. And as far as we can tell, the house looks just like the other house. The house may even look more beautiful, lots of decoration, lots of works, lots of awards, lots of applause, Remember chapter six, Matthew chapter six? Living for man's applause. Listen, it may even look better than the other house from the outside. But when the final storm comes, when your life comes under God's inspection and God's scrutiny, not your parents, not your friends, not your pastors, God's judgment. The house will be no more. Look at this. I love how Jesus, in, in, in describing these two men, the, the wise and the fool, everything is just parallel, everything up until the last phrase. And great was its fall. Great it, to emphasize this house, Jesus says, will be utterly destroyed. Why? Because it was built on the sand. Now, Here's something to think about. The foolishness, listen, the foolishness of this man was not in choosing sand for his foundation, but in not choosing the rock. That makes sense? The foolishness of this man was not in choosing sand. Like, you know, he had a contractor come into his place and he's like, well, bro, you, you ready to build a house? Yes, okay, so you can build on rock or you can build on sand. What do you want? And the guy is like, sand. Let's build on sand. Why? Perfect place. To, that's, that's not what he was doing. No, the, the reality is just like we don't choose the Broadway because we're on the Broadway by nature. We don't choose to build on sand because we're on sand by nature. It doesn't matter what you build right now. It doesn't matter what you believe doesn't matter what you hold dear and true and what you confess. If it's not Christ, then it's sand. And everybody's born on sand. Everybody's born on this broad way. The minute you're born, you're sinking. Then you hear the word of Christ, and he says, I am offering you myself that you may not be destroyed. Choose me. Build on me. Friends, Jesus wants us to see and to understand this, that true saving faith is that which responds, which believes, and produces obedience. That which treasures Christ's words. I mean, what does it mean to act? You may be sitting here and it's like, okay, what does it mean to act on them? Act on God's word. Well, we studied two weeks ago, and Mike already read 
this passage in, in John 6:40, right? And we concluded after our study through Matthew and then John 6:40, where Jesus says, This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. The will of the Father to act on God's word is to believe in them, it is to trust them, it is to rest on his perfect righteousness. It is to stop building on anything but Christ and his work and his righteousness alone. So when you believe, you get transformed. You see, there's a, there's a follow through that Jesus has been saying. If you just simply profess, if you just simply talk, but there is no, there is no transformation that happened, there's no, there's no fruit then it's all a talk. But when you receive the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, your affections change so that you love Christ. And if you love Christ, then you will come to love his word. You will come to love his agenda, right? Isn't that what he says in in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. You will keep my commandments. You're not, friends, justified by your obedience, which is produced by faith. Rather, you are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always produces obedience. There's a real change that takes place. Real, actual, practical change that takes place. I'll remind you what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Remember, he's, he's describing this tug of war, tug of war with sin. Man, I, I just fail so much. But there's, there's a key phrase there. There's a key phrase that, that we need to go back, and I'm not gonna go back there right now, but check this out. In Romans chapter seven, he describes this fight and the struggle. He says this, what I want to do, there is a law within me because I've been born again, right? Romans chapter six, you, were, you, you, you died to self, you were raised up with Christ. Now Romans seven, he says, There is a law within me, and I concur in my inner man. I love God's law, and I want to obey. Does it mean that you 100% will obey the law of God? Absolutely not. You struggle, and part of the reason why we gather here this morning is all of us who are struggling here reminding ourselves that, listen, your faith is built on Christ. Continue to trust Christ in his righteousness to be built up in faith, but there is that difference. You want to love Jesus Christ. You want to obey his word. Why? Because that's the ultimate thing that matters to you. Same thing Alec read at 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1, where it says the work of faith. The faith produces work. And what kind of work did it produce in 1 Thessalonians? Well, he says, you turned, right? You turned from idols to God. That's the work. When you confess, Lord, you are more precious than anything else, you are more precious, you you are worthy of worship, then you turn around and you go home and you see all of these little idols in your kitchen or in your living room or at your coffee table. What do you do as a professing believer? Take a garbage bag, right? And you clear out the table. You start sweeping things away. Why? Because faith moves you to action. And this little guy, this little idol is competing with your love for Christ. There's a fruit there. There's a change that happens. 
Don't just hear the message, obey the message is what Jesus is saying. True saving faith is that which produces obedience. But there's another caution that, that Matthew presents for us at the end as he now, Jesus is done. I want you to notice something too before we get to our second point. Look what, look what he ends with. The rain fell, verse 27, and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. Amen. That meant to reverberate in our hearts, in the hearts of his hearers. You walk away from this message and you're thinking, why did the house fall? Why did it not survive? And Matthew here, the way he composes this sermon and, and he wants that to ring in your ears, to ring in our ears, consider why. Are you building? Are you trusting? Are you simply hearing or are you obeying? Are you responding to Jesus by faith? And then he says this, when Jesus had finished these words, oh, the crowds, they were amazed at his teaching. This is the best thing we've ever heard. It's like you go to a conference, right? And I don't know, Shepherd's Conference or Resolved, maybe some of you guys went back in the day and you listen to these amazing preachers and speakers and you walk away and you're like, whoa, this is great. Like, I wanna be back. That's amazing. We're gonna have 21 more sessions, you know, in the next three days. Let's do this again. This is, this is great. So when, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. They're like, whoa. And here's the point. Don't just admire the messenger. Submit to the messenger. Don't just admire the messenger, but submit. It's hard to miss their reaction, right? They were amazed. Why? Because he spoke as one who had authority. No one had ever taught this way before. No one had ever personalized God's word the way Jesus did. He did not cite any higher authority like the scribes usually did. He appealed to God as his father. And he said, I'm the authority. Why? Because many people will say to me on that day, I am the authority. And they're like, what an amazing teacher. But as the rest of the Matthew's gospel will inform, while the crowds, they were usually impressed with Jesus, most of them did not become his disciples. They liked the show of discipleship, but they did not enjoy the cross of discipleship. That's why every once in a while, as Jesus would travel, he would look back. He would look back at the crowd and they would ask, why, why are you following me? What are you looking for? Why are you following me? Is it because I fed you? You want something from me? Why are you following Christ? Is it because you like to be moved? Why do you come to church? Is it because you just want to pacify your conscience? Why do you admire Christ? You see, friends, you can be moved by Jesus. You can be impressed with him. 
You can even love him as a wise intellectual leader, a humble leader, but never bow down to him as Lord. You can love his message, but the messenger says, you must submit to me. Many sing about him, but only few submit. Many people watch movies about him, but they will never lay down their lives for his sake. And as we talked about, many people will appreciate his words, but how many will actually act on them? Matthew makes his point clear. Jesus did speak with authority. Yet the crowds did not recognize what that authority ultimately revealed about the messenger. Here's the, here's the point. Unless you submit to the messenger, you will not obey the message or anything else the messenger has to say. You got to love him. You got to love Jesus. Your heart needs to change. Your heart needs to be transformed. It's like, we were just singing, let every effort of my heart right, display the matchless worth of Christ. What are we singing? What we're singing is as, as, as we behold Jesus Christ, as we confess him as our Lord, as we continue to serve him, let every effort of my heart, that means whatever I do, my desires, my work, my serving, and everything else, that, let all of that, me acting on God's word, let all of that display the matchless worth of Christ. And until Christ is matchless for you, it'll be very hard to display any effort for him. Friends, true saving faith is not, is that which not only recognizes, but submits to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. He alone outlines the agenda for your life. He is the master. He is your Lord. So what is the call here at the end? Commit your ways, commit your life to Christ. Build your life on the sure rock, the only true foundation. Because, friends, building on anything else is foolish. The word here that's used is moronic. You are a moron if you build your life on anything other than Christ. So for you who are not Christians in this church, in this congregation right now, in this gathering, it means that you believe and that you repent and you become a follower of Jesus Christ, entered the kingdom of heaven by trusting him. And to you who already believe and are justified by faith, Jesus is calling you to persevere in your discipleship. How can you tell if you are in? How can you tell if you are saved? Think about the sermon that we've covered. Are you exhibiting the attitudes of the one who is in the kingdom? Matthew 5, 3 through 16, humility towards God, mercy towards men, desire to be the light for Christ in the dark world. Uh, chapter six, are you living for the father's approval instead of man's approval? It all goes back to the motivation. It all goes back to your heart. Are you guided by the priorities of the kingdom? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Are you daily relying on God's provisions? 
Remember, church, the goal of the sermon is to clearly explain our need for Christ. And as we come to trust Christ, to see, right, we, we, we begin to see and be, we get, begin to walk as citizens of his kingdom, which the attitudes of which he describes here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So, friend, do you possess saving faith? Not your own perfection. No, we're not talking about perfection. That's fool's errand. You can't. But faith in Christ, which produces obedience to his word. Perfectly? Absolutely not. But obedience that is ever longing, ever increasing to be like your Savior. We sing this song on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. May we feel the gravity of what you're saying here. And may we be compelled by the Spirit to continue to come to you, we who are saved, just to, just to see, Father. We, we need Christ. We, we need him every day. We needed him before we were saved. We need him now because it is only in his righteousness that we stand. We want to please Christ. We want to live, and yet we continue to fail. Father, let us look to him. It's not on our work. It's his work. He is the rock. He is the foundation. Oh, Father, if anyone is struggling here, to understand these truths, to submit, and maybe perhaps he's, he thinks that he's on solid ground or she thinks right now that he's safe, that, that she, she has a rock big enough to sustain her through the storm. Oh, would you just reveal and just compel that heart to, to stop being foolish, to trust you. You know the end from the beginning and you love us enough to tell us. Conform us continually, this church, the saints here in this body, to the image of Christ. In his holy name we pray, amen.